Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Josh. I'm the, the preacher here at ECC. Um, we're going to wrap up our, our series on the book of Psalms. We're calling Selah. Uh, so today's going to be the last, uh, the last day that we're, we're going through the Psalms. And, and, and I think it's been a really cool adventure going through all of these different styles and genres of psalms. We looked at praise psalms, wisdom psalms, laments, royal psalms, history. Last week we were touched a little bit on Thanksgiving psalms. And, and one thing, I, as I'm kind of looking at this series overall, that I hope you realize is that all of these categories that we're looking at, these genres of psalms, they're really flexible. Right? I, I, I hope you understand that this is by no means a comprehensive overview of Everything that the book of Psalms has to offer. Um, there's some styles and genres that we didn't cover because I wanted to do seven because seven is a really good biblical number. Um, but there's, you know, there's uh, imprecatory psalms where, where the psalmist is calling down curses and there's a lot of anger involved on his enemies. Um, you can look into those. Those can be difficult sometimes to read and understand. But the, but the point of this whole series is my, my hope and my goal is that as you read the book of Psalms in the future, I hope you start to recognize the patterns that we've been picking up and these styles. So my hope is that you, you would read through Psalms uh, in your daily devotions and ask yourself, what, what style is this psalm? What is the psalmist wanting me to feel? What is the genre here? What types of emotions is God wanting to really lean on in this psalm? Um, I hope you look at different psalms and start to see those patterns. I hope you look at one and say, wow, this one really reminds me of this other psalm. And there's a, there's a common theme there. So we've gone on through like seven or eight different psalms, but you can apply this experience and this genres to all of them. And then just as a little preview, uh, either next week or two weeks after that, I'm not sure exactly when we're going to start, in either a week or two weeks, um, we're going to jump into the book of Philippians. And so we're going to do a study, a deep dive on the book of Philippians. So I, I think that's going to be a lot of fun too. But, but for today, I want to finish up our series about Psalms, looking at Psalms of trust. Um, if you have the, the bulletin and, and a couple other things, I had planned on looking at Psalm 23 and Psalm 91 today. But by the time I got through going through Psalm 23, I, there was just so much that I wanted to talk about Psalm 23 that I ran out of time. Um, and so we're not going to be able to get to Psalm 91 today. So maybe on Tuesdays during our Bible study, we'll dive into Psalm 91. And I encourage you to come to those. Um, Tuesday nights is a really awesome opportunity to get a deeper dive on what we talk about on Sundays. But for today, I want us to, to read through and experience Psalm 23. Um, so, Psalm 23 is like the the most influential passage of Scripture of all time, right? It, it's possible that, at least in the psalm, probably even in the entire Bible, in terms of it's the psalm that everybody knows, um, it's the psalm that you hear recited in movies, uh, it's even in some rap songs, um, parts of Psalm 23. I'm not, I'm not big rap fans, but even in rap songs, it's the psalm that you hear at funerals, it's the psalm that, you know, gets recited by the hospital chaplain at somebody's bedside. And, and I think there's a reason why Psalm 23 is so compelling is because it, it, it encapsulates who God is 
and what he wants for us in six verses. In six very short verses, we get this full idea of, of the picture of God. There's, there's books upon books that are written about this psalm to the point where, you know, I told you there was so much I wanted to talk about about Psalm 23, but at the same time, there's so much about this psalm that there's nothing that I'm going to tell you that hasn't already been said. Um, there, there's really nothing about this psalm that you can say about it that even comes close to the magnitude of, of the psalm itself. This is one of those places where uh, a lot of times the words for the psalm speaks for themselves. You're like, what can I add to God's word here to, to enhance it and make it better? Like Everything's there. And so as, as we go through this, this psalm, I, I, I want you to, rather than try to explain it, Rather than try to, you know, pick apart too much, I want to suggest experience. Um, let's go ahead and read Psalm 23. And I'm going to be reading in the, in the uh, English Standard Version, um, because that's actually closer to what you guys are a lot used to, right, with the language there. So uh, I'm going to see if I can make sure I can get this to pull up. We're just going to go one verse at a time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Oh, did I skip a verse? I'm sorry, guys. Oh. I had one verse in there twice. Oh, no, I messed it up. There we go. He restores my soul. This is what happens when you change the Bible version you're using. Because I don't have an ESV Bible. Sorry. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so as we kind of are, are working our way through this psalm, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine yourself in the wilderness under the care of, of a shepherd. Not necessarily that you are a sheep, but that you are uh, a human being who's under the care of God, of the good shepherd, and who's, who's cared for and tended for in the same way that a sheep might be cared for in the wilderness. Like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. This, this wilderness is, is a foreboding place. It's intimidating. It's, it's a place of chaos and evil. It's a place where on our own we have a hard time uh, surviving. And we're going, to do, we're going to do a little bit of psychology here. What I want you to do is I want you to, t this wilderness that you're in, this foreboding place, I want you to give it a name. You're going to name that wilderness after the thing that is causing you pain in your life. In your mind, I want you to label that wilderness, whether it's grief, whether it's anxiety, whether it's doubts and insecurities or, or problems with your marriage or fear, whatever it is, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever pain you're being caused, 
That's the wilderness. And every time I say the word wilderness, I want you to imagine that thing. Okay? I know you have one because it's, it's, it's part of life. That's, that's, everybody has the wilderness that they walk through. And as you're in that wilderness, I want you to know that you have a shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. I shall not want. The, some Bibles, you might, your Bible might say, I lack nothing. It's, a, it's, this, it's this term. It's, it's really hard to put in English because it, it's a word that means nothing. Right? So in, in Genesis uh, chapter 8, the account of the flood... Where, where it's describing the waters are receding from the earth. That's the same word that's used in this psalm. The waters are lacking. The waters are, they're not there anymore. It's a word that, that means nothing. And so in the psalm, we have the negative version of that is I don't have nothing. I don't lack. I don't desire for anything. And that's important because... In this, in this verse, what we're not saying is, I have everything. We're not saying I'm completely full, at least not in this verse. What we're saying is, I'm not empty. I don't lack. I'm here in this wilderness, I, but I have a shepherd, I have a caretaker, and I'm not empty. I might not have everything I want, but I have everything I need precisely because God is my shepherd. Having that Shepherd in the wilderness is the difference between having nothing and having something. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Right? The King James. He maketh me to lie down. And I don't want you to understand making me lie down as, as God is forcing you to rest. He's compelling you. That's not really... That's not really the, the gist of the word. What, what it means is, is God is causing you to lie down. God is the one acting and bedding you down. The shepherd is doing the leading. He is the one doing the action. And we are following our shepherd. The, the New Living Translation, I think, um, it says, He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. God is bedding us down. And I think what we're getting here a little bit is imagery of the Garden of Eden. When we think about this wilderness that we're in and we think about our shepherd bedding us down, think about this. God, he creates the entire universe out of darkness. Right? It says his spirit was hovering over the abyss, over the darkness, over the nothingness. And from that darkness, he brings forth things that are good. Genesis chapter 2 says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the earth. Right? So you have this picture in Genesis where God creates this universe, but he hasn't put man there to tend it yet. He hasn't watered it yet. It's not a garden yet. It's a wilderness. It's a jungle. Very foreboding place. It's a very... It's not quite yet the place you want to really be in. 
And out of the dust, God forms a man, and God plants this garden in the east. In the midst of the wilderness, he makes this oasis in the middle of the chaos. He puts a place of life, and he takes the man out of the wilderness and places him in the garden. And that's, that's kind of what we're getting here in Psalm 23. God is taking you out of your wilderness and placing you in a position of safety. In green pastures beside cool streams. He's providing for you in the wilderness. He's giving you a place where you can finally say, it is good. It is good. Verse 3. It says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The NIV says he refreshes my soul. The New Living says he renews my strength. When you're in that wilderness, when you're in that place of of anxiety, of grief, of pain, there are times when you just get tired. If you're living in fear, if you're living in anxiety or grief, and you're dealing with stress and all of these things, or failure, or whatever your wilderness is, there are times when... The wilderness is the problem, and then there are other times when battling the wilderness just makes you tired. God, I'm I'm tired of feeling this way. I'm tired of having to constantly fight these enemies. I'm tired of dealing with sin. I'm tired. I just need rest. And what God wants to do is just scoop you up and set you down next to a stream where you can just take a minute and get a cool drink of water. Just rest. Think about Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A renewal of your soul. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to not rely on your own understanding, not on your own strength, not on your own ability to choose good from evil, but he wants you to rely on him and allow him to be your shepherd. And then the second second part of that verse, it says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's important because God is the shepherd. All of the things we do, he is the one who gets the glory and the praise. Everything we do, everything God does is for his name, not ours. We get into verse 4. Even though I walk, right, the the, the old King James, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's here's what's interesting about verse 4. Verse 4 is the first point in this psalm where we get any hint of evil or darkness that exists. Right? I told you to imagine yourself in a wilderness. But up until verse 4, there's no wilderness. There's no darkness. There's no evil you're battling. But it's here in verse 4 that we're reminded that Even though we're with our shepherd, even though we're beside the stream, even though we're in the garden, if you want to think of it that way, that wilderness is still there. That darkness is still there. The shadow 
is still there, and we, we walk in the shadow of death. We, we go back to our creation account. You'll notice something interesting about the way God created the world. God is he's hovering over the darkness, over the, the nothingness, the abyss, the chaos. And what God does not do at first is he, he doesn't banish the darkness and then only create light. He doesn't banish the wilderness and only create the garden. He, he takes that nothingness, that chaos, that emptiness, and he creates something good in the midst of it. Eden, the garden, the, the oasis that's there, the earth was, it was formless and empty and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And the light was good and he separated the light from the dark. I don't know why God did it that way. He's God. He knows. But he didn't abolish the darkness. The darkness is still there. And, and if you notice, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, there are some things that it, it, God doesn't explicitly call good. Like he doesn't call the abyss good. He doesn't call the darkness good. He doesn't call the, the, the thing that he puts the light into good. He calls the light good. He doesn't call the wilderness good. He calls the garden good, the life that he brings into the wilderness good. God took something that was inherently empty and chaotic and created good in it. And here, here in our psalm, we walk with the shadow of death. The shadow of that darkness is still hovering over us, but we're not afraid because we're with our shepherd. His rod and his staff, it comforts us. The rod and the staff, these are really, really interesting images that, this, that, that David uses here in this psalm. Because the rod is a symbol of God's guidance. It's a tool that's used by the shepherd to keep his street, sheep from going away. Who, who did like 4-H as a kid? Anybody? No? Nobody? Kind of? Okay, so if you had, and I don't know how it works with sheep so much, but I remember there were some friends that I had in 4-H that, they would run pigs, and they had the little, the little rod, the little staff. It, it's that kind of imagery where it's like, nope, you're getting off point. I gotta, oh. it, wasn't a, it wasn't a discipline thing. It was just a guiding, this is where you need to go. But the rod, too, is also, it's a tool that's used by the shepherd to fend off wolves. It's a weapon, if need be. And the staff is a symbol of the shepherd's authority. Yeah, with Steve, yeah, I see what you're saying. The, the staff is, think about Moses in the wilderness with his flock, with his flock of Israelites. He's got the staff, that's his authority. And we can have comfort in knowing that God is there leading us and providing us and having authority over our lives. Verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. If you read books on Psalm 23 or commentaries or anything like that, a lot of times what you'll read is they'll say, okay, now in the Psalm, first we were supposed to imagine being with our shepherd out in the field, and now we're supposed to imagine being at the table with the king. Um, maybe we're in a temple, maybe we're in a palace, but we're here at a table with, with our Meal. And as we're working through this psalm today, I, I want to challenge that a little bit. I want to encourage you in your mind as we're 
experiencing this psalm, stay out in the field with your shepherd in your mind. Because the word, the word there for table, it, it can be used, it can be used in the sense of table, like we think, like a wooden structure with, with four legs and you sit down. But that same word is also used to describe uh, an animal skin or, or a blanket or something that's rolled out on the ground to keep your food out of the dust. That same word can be used to describe that. It's, it's, a, it's a picnic blanket. Like that's the imagery you should have in your mind as we think of this psalm. You're out there, you're with your shepherd, you're by the stream, and he rolls out the picnic blanket. And he sets us down by the stream. And the wilderness is still out there. The darkness is still out there. The shadow of death is still present. But we are guided by God. We're protected by God. We're sustained by God. And in the full view of your enemies, of your wilderness, of your pain, God says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a picnic for you. I'm going to set up a feast for you. The, the NET Bible says, God prepares a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. It's, it's almost like God is taunting our enemies, our wilderness. Like, Satan wants to set traps for us. He wants to trip us up in our marriage. He wants us to stumble into sin. He wants us to feed into that darkness. And God's like, nope. I was planning on having a picnic with, with my, my child today. You're going to have to wait. Not today. I've got other plans. Death, anxiety, grief, pain, all of that stuff. You're just going to have to wait because we've got a nice little spot over here by the stream. I've got a blanket rolled out. And I'm going to take my flock and we're just going to have we're just going to have a feast. Says you anoint my head with oil. This is a this is a really interesting one too. Um, there's two there are two different Hebrew words that are used to, to describe that we, we translate as anoint. One of which is the type of anointing that you picture when you think about royalty. Right, the king was anointed as king. Jesus. It's the same word where we get uh, the word Messiah from. That's a kind of anointing, and it's this royal thing, it's this priestly thing. That's not what the word we have here. Um, the word, I tried to find a, a prettier word to describe the type of anointing here. I, I looked and looked and looked. It literally means grease or fatten. So why does our Bible say anoint? Well, one, it's poetry, and... There's a culture difference, and if the psalm said, you grease my forehead, people are going to go, what? What? You're, so, so number one, you're just going to have to trust that in the Hebrew culture, that wasn't weird. It was a good thing. And for us, we're like, ugh. Um, yeah, because could you imagine if like, you went over to somebody's house for dinner, and, and you, know, you brought over your flowers and a bottle of wine, and rang the doorbell, and they're, they got that tub of Crisco right there. Like, Come on in! Let's get you! That's, 
And so, and so your Bible doesn't say you grease my forehead because then, then you're going to have all sorts of weird images in your head, but um, you miss the point. That it's, you know what it is? It's like, okay, late, late spa day. No? Oh, man, I got the wrong crowd. My wife would be like, oh, yeah. Okay, well, just imagine if you've got girlfriends you've had a spa day. You know, you go over and they put all that goopy stuff on your face and you put vegetables on your eyes. And, and to us guys, we're like, that's weird. But, the, you know, ladies are like, oh, no, that's, that's relaxing. That's that exfoliating goopy stuff. Like, that's, that's good for your skin. That's... That's about the closest parallel I can imagine in this anointing that we're imagining. So you've got to imagine here that, that you're with your shepherd, you're by the stream, he's rolled out the picnic blanket, he's got the feast there before you, death is over there, the shadow of death, your wilderness is still there, and God's like, you know what, I'm going to lay out a picnic for you, and I'm going to give you spa treatment, I'm going to anoint your head. It says, my cup overflows. So not only are you set up with the spa treatment and all of this stuff, but you're there with a feast and maybe a nice glass of warm red wine or whatever it is that you've got, and your cup is overflowing. You're abundantly provided for in full view of your enemies. It's, there's, there's something about this psalm, and we're calling it a trust psalm, that, that is just having that vision of trusting God that much to be with him in your wilderness and allow him to care for you. Verse um, 6. It says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you trust God that much? Do you trust God enough that when you're in your wilderness, your grief, your pain, your struggles, your finances, your sin, whatever it is, and when you're hemmed in on all sides, by the world, do you trust God enough to just allow him to be your shepherd? As a, as a quick side note, will somebody um, send a message down to Virginia to start wrapping up? We've got a, we've got a couple minutes still, but I want to let them know they've got about a five-minute warning. Sorry. Um, if you guys remember a few months ago when we did our series on Exodus, I know it's been a while. But, but we, we looked at the book of Exodus and we had our pyramid method. You guys remember that? We talked about these different layers of viewing scripture. So it, try to remember back, we, we did the pyramid and the base layer of the pyramid method was just understanding what the text says. Right? That's kind of what we did here. We, we looked at the psalm and, and we're experiencing poetry. We're trying to place ourselves there. We're trying to envision the imagery that the psalmist is painting. That's that literal layer. And then you go up a layer from that and you start looking at the moral layer, the layer of application. 
That's that layer where we ask ourselves, how does my behavior need to change after reading this passage of Scripture? That's one of the most important questions you should ask when you read the Bible. How does my life need to change in light of this passage of Scripture? And I think one thing from this psalm that is abundantly clear is that this psalm encourages us to put 110% of our faith and trust in God to the point where we say, God, you are my shepherd. You provide for my needs, my sustenance, my protection. Everything that I have and everything that I need comes from you. And then you go, you go a layer up from that, and, and that's the layer where we do the fingerprints, when we say, how does this passage of Scripture point me to Jesus? How does this psalm point us to Christ? Well, Christ is our shepherd. I want to read from, from John, John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And don't miss that I am there. Anytime in the book of John where Jesus says I am, what he's saying is I am the I am. Okay. So not only is he saying, I am God, the same one that the psalmist in Psalm 23 is talking about, the Lord is my shepherd, but Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who's, who's not a shepherd and doesn't own sheep, sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. You're going to have people in your life and institutions in your life that are going to want to be the shepherd, but the minute that your enemies and your wilderness starts to hem in, they're going to see that and turn tail and run. God is not that way. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. He runs away. This is so important that Jesus says it twice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. I have other sheep that do not come from this sheepfold. Real, real quick, that's Jesus talking about. He's talking to the Jews. But then he says, here in a little while, all of the world is going to become my sheep. That's us. I have other sheep that are not from the sheepfold. I must bring them in too, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. In that fingerprints layer, we understand that Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is the object of this psalm. He's the one we are putting our trust in. Which brings us to that top layer of the pyramid. That's the, that's the part of the pyramid where once we've, once we've understood what it means, once we've applied it to our lives, once we've found the Jesus connection and we've put Christ at the center of it, then we say, what does this psalm say about the nature of God? About eternal things, about our doctrine, about our salvation? What's the big picture of this psalm? When I read this psalm, I get the understanding that 
God, our God is the kind of God who wants to be in intimate relationship with us. From, from Genesis 1 all the way to the book of Revelation, the entire Bible is the story of God pursuing us and trying to have a relationship. That last verse in our psalm says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Some Bibles say, will pursue me. God is chasing us down. He wants a relationship with us that bad, and that's all he wants from us. Think about that. He doesn't want our sacrifices. He doesn't want our adherence to the law. He doesn't want our good deeds. He doesn't want our adherence to religious rituals and certain patterns. What he wants is our heart. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to be our shepherd. He wants us to put our faith and our trust in him and him alone. If you, I realize that everyone in here has, has already made a commitment to Christ, but we have people in our lives who don't have God as a shepherd. I encourage you to share this with them and let them know that if, if they want that shepherd, if they want rest from that wilderness and a renewal of their souls, what it takes is submission and allowing God to just be their shepherd. To participate with him in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus through baptism and entry into newness of life, a restoring of our souls. Will you pray with me? Father God, you are our shepherd. We thank you for the green pastures you provide us. We thank you for the cool streams that you give us. We thank you for the renewing of our souls. God, even though we walk through darkness, even though we walk through the valley, through the wilderness of our pain and our grief, you're there with us, comforting us by your authority, by your protection, by your guidance. And God, we just ask that you continue to lead us along the paths of righteousness, not for our glory, but for yours. God, we thank you for the abundant feast that you provide for us. We thank you for the luxury that you pour upon us, the lavishness. We thank you for the abundance that you give us, the blessings we have Your goodness and mercy will pursue us, will chase us down all the days of our lives. And God, we are so grateful that one day we will get to live in your presence all the days of our eternal lives. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.